Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Before Sarah discovered Chumbacasino.com, she enjoyed chamomile tea. Come on, big jackpot. And being in PJs by six. Let's go. The new fun Sarah. Woohoo! Often thinks about the old boring Sarah yes. and wonders if that Sarah ever really existed. Chumba Casino has over a hundred casino style games. So join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. No purchase necessary. We were created by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Come out of the southern part of Afghanistan and uh, we, were, we were actually going into Bogota for like a night. Everybody was acting the gringo fool, and the guys wanted to grab a beer, and we turned to walk in the Bogota Beer Company, and the whole front of it just blows out. My ears were ringing. I sit up, and everybody in the restaurant is still just sitting there on fire. So I look over at my sergeant major. My ears are completely blown out, and he's yelling, but I can't hear what he's saying. He was pointing the way to go, and it was opposite of where everybody else was running. You know, he had worked in Columbia a long time, and he knew there was a secondary. We picked up, and we, we just were pushing through the crowd, and sure as shit, another explosion right into where everybody was running. And then followed by AK-47 fire, and we just kept moving until we, we cleared out of there and got up to a piece of high ground where we could observe and report and call the embassy, and, and you know, but it just came out of nowhere, man. Welcome to Mic Drop the podcast where relevancy is irrelevant and we don't give a shit about your feelings. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, it's both an honor and a pleasure to welcome my next guest to the podcast. He spent almost 23 years on active duty in the United States Army, primarily as a Green Beret. He's got three, he's got a multitude of deployments, three of which uh, the long Iraq year-long deployments that we're going to get into, I'm sorry, Afghanistan de- uh, deployments that we're going to get into, but he's been to Iraq and Colombia as well. He's the author of Operation Pineapple Express. He's also the founder of Task Force Pineapple. He's a, a playwright uh, working on a project with Gary Sinise called Last Out that we'll talk about. And Sam Troutman's character in Rambo was not loosely but tightly based off of him. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> welcome to the stage, Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann. Yeah, he can make the, eat things that make a billy goat puke. That's right. Tell me you didn't. Were you inspired by that movie? I, I was inspired by that movie. I, I'd be lying if I said I, I wasn't. I, I absolutely was inspired yeah. by it. I can't even remember how many times I saw it, but it was a bunch. Yeah, I think any any, <clears throat> any special operations guy over the age of probably 35, yeah. uh, for sure, probably yeah, was. You know, for but, sure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, first blood, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, tell me you're a Green Beret without telling me that you're a Green Beret. I work by, with, and through people and uh, help them stand up on their own. Amen. What, uh, what's the last full book that you've read? <sighs> wow. Um, man, you caught me off guard on that one. Um, it's, it's amazing how many people that catches off. Yeah, guard. yeah. Um, hold on. Uh, Culture Code. Culture Code. Yeah, yeah. What's the gist on that? Um, it's really, it's, it's really well done. It's, uh, it's, it's talking about, uh, he, he does a, a study on uh, high-performing cultures around the world and what it really looks like. He, he kind of synthesized the findings. Uh, he looked at NFL teams, uh, at Fortune 500 companies, and, and what he really landed on. Daniel Coyle, by the way, is the author. 
And what he landed on was really three things every time that show up in a high-performing organization, which is um, psychological safety, uh, human connection, and a shared future. What uh, Can you kind of uh, synopsize psychological safety? Yeah, you know, obviously the the – the level that you and I would relate to is more of a primal level, you know, actual safety, you know, of being threatened physically. Uh, and, and, and the way that the old part of the brain responds to that is indeed that it is fight, flight, or freeze kind of stuff. But what, um, what Coyle and, and others are putting out there these days that I like is kind of modern day psychological safety is the ability to basically speak your truth at work in your organization without somebody landing on you. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and being able to, you know, kind of speak truth to the mission, the purpose, whatever it is, uh, and not feel like somebody's going to put a knife in your back when you do it. Yeah. Well, so one thing that you mentioned, uh, and maybe it's semantics, uh, but I, I want to ask, um, cause I've heard it brought up a number of times is speaking your truth. Uh, is one thing that strikes me as, uh, peculiar about that statement, which, you know, to me, um, like saying that this is my truth is kind of like saying, my arithmetic like well two plus yeah. two is five to me yeah like, like or or like whether it's you know transgender stuff i mean like whatever it's like to me there, there's a and and maybe i'm overthinking it but to me that like that term of speaking your truth seems almost disingenuous well it's it it's a shame that even saying it is necessary i mean it's a great call out um you know i equate it to point of view mm-hmm. you know it's putting your point of view out there into the world with again without somebody landing on you or having to look over your shoulder in an organization and or bite your tongue because you don't want to lose your job. Yeah. I mean, shit, I, I live that to a certain extent. I mean, I, it, I will say this show is, is, is about as unfiltered as any show that, that mm-hmm. exists, but, um, <clears throat> but I'm still, you know, cognizant of the fact that it's a product, you know, and, yeah. and the people that watch it and listen are, are customers and, uh, and there's a certain element of, um, I guess decorum or, or a way that you, you have to conduct yourself to a certain extent. I will also say that I think 98% of the people that, that pay attention and, and follow this show appreciate it and follow it or listen to it because it's unfiltered and, and there's no, there's no bullshit or no pun, uh, punches pulled. But. I mean, even unfiltered. I mean, the fact that we have to use that word today, I mean, yeah. the, the, you know, yeah. I was raised that you, you don't, you know, I was never, taught that you had to have a filter when yeah. you talk to yeah. somebody, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Um, th- those three things though, uh, it's what I really liked about that book is that it, it gave, it gave kind of a consistent aim point, uh, for leaders to look at it, uh, as you're, as you're building a culture and, and I've found them to be pretty accurate. Yeah. Did, did you find, uh, while reading it that you could reduce a, a single point of, uh, continuity between those that, that, whether it's a selection thing or, or a, a character trait possession, um, you know, was there one kind of identifying factor, uh, team to team, group to group? Yeah. I mean, honestly, it was, it was leaders who are relatable. Um, you know, uh, he gave several examples. It, it, the other thing too, though, is a lot of these books by Daniel Coyle, Simon Sinek, you know, the one thing that I think you have to kind of take with a grain of salt, and it's not a strike on those guys, is they're academics. The guys that write these and do this phenomenal research on high-performing organizations and things, they're typically academics. They have not actually been in those organizations. That's right. Yeah. 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 And, and, and so, um, but I will say that what, what Coyle, I think really brought forward that I try to teach and uh, implement into, into what I do is, is being relatable to other humans, uh, is, is a real, 
uh, attribute yeah. in any organization. Yeah, no, agreed. Uh, what is your favorite childhood memory? Um, my favorite childhood memory would be uh, walking in the Smoky Mountains with my grandfather and my cousins. So I guess we don't need to ask where you're from. All over, but <laughs> Western North Carolina is what yeah, I call home. Yeah. Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. uh, what is your morning routine on a, on a normal day where you're actually in town? I am a ritual. It doesn't matter if I'm in town or not. I am a ritual fanatic. Um, I, as a storyteller and someone who, who really tries to be as effective as I can in influence, I've, I've, I had some good mentors that taught me, starting with some good NCOs, that, that your relationship to practice, regardless of what your craft is, your relationship to practice is the difference between a pro and an amateur. Right. And, and, um, as I started to get into public speaking, um, performance acting, that kind of thing, um, I saw very quickly that the, the, the very same thing applies. If you're going to get up in front of people, take the microphone, do that kind of thing. Having rituals is a really important thing. So my, my rituals, uh, as soon as I'm up in the morning, um, you know, starts with, you know, just the calisthenics I've done since I was a young man, but it involves uh, hitting both knees and, and praying. That's kept me sober for 21 years. Um, and then I go through a whole bunch of vocal warm-ups and all kinds of, my kids call it, uh, dad's embracing the weird. Uh, but you can hear me in the bedroom doing all the vocal range stuff and all the warm-ups and um, physicality drills. It takes me like an hour yeah. to get through all those rituals, Yeah, Do you, wherever I am. Yeah. Do you uh, eat anything first few hours? I don't. I, I don't. I, I, I'm a, uh, I do drink 20 ounces of uh, room temperature water right out of the gate. I found that that really, that, that helps me a lot. Um, but I don't eat typically uh, for several hours. I'll do a bulletproof coffee, Yeah, you know, um, and, and that tends to hold me over, and that, that seems to work okay for me. Yeah. Uh, is there a specific time that you wake up every day? No. no. Um, I would say I'm, it's more of a range, um, somewhere between uh, 536, 45, yeah. just depending on what we got lined up for the day. Yeah, okay. Uh, so a little bit about your childhood. So you're from uh, western North Carolina, you said? That's my origins, yes, sir. Um, and what, if you could kind of uh, walk us through your your childhood, um, you know, from an outsider's perspective. Yeah, my my mom and dad, Anita and Rex Mann, um, were are civil servants. They, my dad worked uh, for the U.S. Forest Service. My mom was a teacher. So, dad was as a forester. We lived in these little logging towns all over the South and uh, places that didn't even have a stoplight, really. Yeah. And 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 growing up, you know, it was. It was pretty awesome because I love the outdoors and my dad obviously was a woodsman and the places that we would live, there was nothing but outdoors, yeah. you know, logging towns and things like that, farming communities. So growing up was really, was really great. It was small town, uh, Southern small towns. Um, you know, I'd say that probably the biggest challenge for me was I was very, very small. I'm oh, out yeah. of a runt. Yeah. And, and you know, loved sports, loved athletics, but was generally, generally on the outside looking in most of the time, trying to yeah. trying to get a spot on the team. Um, All but, sports? Or? Uh, I played football, basketball, and baseball. You know, it's one of those towns that, like, you yeah. could literally play all three yeah. and, and were encouraged to do so. Yeah. Uh, but, it, it again, just a, real, a run of a kid. Um, got along pretty well with everybody, but it was actually when I was about 14 – um, I met a guy named Mark who was a Green Beret home on leave uh, visiting his dad. His dad owned Harold's Drugstore. And uh, he, I, as soon as I saw the dude, like I, I just knew that's what I wanted to be. And I didn't even know what he did. Uh, but I sat <laughs> down so with him, and, and he was really cool, man. He took the time to explain to me what a Green Beret was and what they did. He was a team leader at the time. And, man, I was hooked. Was it, uh, was it a presence that, uh, that you were like, 
whatever the fuck he has, I want it. It was. And you know what? You know what it was for me, uh, Mike, is, is that, and I know this is going to sound super cornball, but like the dude actually saw me. Mm-hmm. Because at 14, a, a, a run of a kid, like I was pretty much invisible a lot, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I felt that way. But the second I went up to this guy and talked to him, he sat down with me and, I mean, talked to me like an adult yeah. and talked to me as if he were talking to the next team leader in, in Special Forces. Wow. You know, and, it, and it, I never forgot it. Does he know that he had the impact? He mentored me until the day I retired. Wow. No shit. He sure did. And, and uh, he, he does know that. And I've told him that, you know, multiple times. Um, he had a massive impact on me. And so much so that, you know, and I'm sure you're the same way, but if I get a, if I get a call today from a young man or woman who is thinking about special operations, I will drop everything right then and there and talk to that kid because yeah. of what Mark did for me. Yeah. I, I will say for me, uh, there's a caveat as it depends. Yeah. Um, you know, from, from my, I, I would say both experience and perspective is that if it's worth it, then I will do it. And mm-hmm. by worth it, I mean like if, if that kid, the, the second I meet him shows me that, that it's worth putting the time into, yeah. which some of them don't, you know, cause to me, like something as simple as, Hey, I, you know, I, I want to be a seal. W- what do I need to do? Like if that's what he says, I already know you're not the right fucking guy for the job. Yeah. You know, like if, if you haven't already researched and done every fucking thing that you can possibly do before you come ask me, mm-hmm. what else do I need to do? I, you know, here's my PST score. You know, I, I've researched all of this. I've, I've read this book and this article and I've done that, you know, like if you haven't put some kind of effort into doing it before you start asking me anything, then to me, like from a predictability standpoint, your chances are almost fucking zero. Uh, yeah. You know, so to me, just from a juice br- being worth the squeeze, like I, I'm happy to help people, but you got to meet me fucking halfway. You yeah, know? I, I do it kind of like that. I, you know, for me, when I met Mark, if he had if he had applied that criteria to me, I would have been fucked. Uh, I wouldn't have been because I didn't know well, anything about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But but back then it was very different. Yeah, too, it was know? Encyclopedia I mean, Britannica yeah. back then. Right. And yeah. uh, but, you know, he he did. He sat down with me and, and he broke it down for me, like what the differences between the organizations were. And after I met him. Man, I was off to the races. I did my own research. I yeah. did, you know, I did my own digging on it. Uh, typically, what I'll do today, if I meet a young person that's interested, is I'll I'll give kind of a, a high level overview for ten or fifteen minutes, and then I'll tell them what they need to do next. Yeah. And when you're done with that, let me know. Yeah. And then and then that's kind of the gate that I yeah. usually put in. Yeah, no, that makes good sense. Uh, did you have siblings growing up? Yep, one little brother. Yeah. Uh, he was. Um, he was in the 82nd. He was four years behind me. Um, but, uh, yeah, he went in the Army as well. He didn't do a full career. Um, he did, I think, uh, like five or six years. But, uh, yeah, we're, we're very close. Did um, did Mark and you serve at the same time? We didn't, you know, because I would have been – I was 14 when I met him, so he was a team leader at the time. Okay. Um, it, it may have been – Mike, late in his career that we did, I think he was, I do want to say he was uh, like an ROTC cadre or something like that when I, when I entered SF. Yeah. Um, but we never served like together in the same unit or anything yeah. like that. Um, all right. So you, you got kind of the motivation to serve from Mark uh, in high school as a young, we'll say probably freshman. Um, did, it sounds like during that entire uh, period of your life in high school was was pretty geared towards wanting to do that or it, it was you know I was opened up at that point and then uh, for example like our county our county sheriff uh, James Roy Carmack was a was a, a Vietnam era Green Beret uh, amazing dude um, and another you know we talked about like Rambo and, and influenced me but the big one that also influenced me I don't know if you ever saw this it was a National Geographic and it was it was like 1965 
and it was titled Special Forces in Vietnam. And it was when they had this Montagnard uprising, basically, mm -hmm. and the team leader uh, ended up doing like a, 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 a ceremony, a friendship ceremony, while the camp's being overrun oh, with sure. the Montagnard chief wow. so that he can't rise up against him. You know, yeah. and I, I, I'll never forget those pictures of like the whole world falling apart around them. Yeah. And here's Captain Gillespie in a friggin' loincloth drinking rice wine. <laughs> You know, and I thought, damn, like that is exactly the yeah. kind of world I want to live in. It yeah, just was cool. really neat. Uh, I'm going to take a, a quick break. I, I do want to let you guys know um, the way that you can support the show is to support our sponsors. Uh, I know some people don't like to hear ads, but uh, that's how I do what I do for a living. So uh, any support you can show for our gracious sponsors is much appreciated. And again, it does uh, does support the show. So thank you. What are the two key components for canine success? That's effective training and proper nutrition. Fueled by Team Dog brings those two components to your family and best friend. The perfect nutritional balance that results in a higher mental acuity, energy, overall vitality, and even an improved appearance. Every product you will find in my company's store was born from the battlefield and not from the boardroom. Let my life's work help you become your dog's hero. I mean, I had a similar, um, I guess, a similar experience with a popular mechanics article. Okay. On the SEAL teams, uh, it was it was much more kind of one hundred and one, uh, you know, general purpose and, and kind of non-specific. But how old were you? I'm like, what was it, it was for 14, you? Fourteen around yeah. that age. Yeah. And, and you, did you know, like, as soon as you? Yeah, I mean, it was like it was. That, I mean, that was a hundred percent the light switch because for yeah. me, uh, like, I'd seen the movie Navy SEALs, I think, and. Okay. Uh, or I don't remember if I saw it first. For sure, the the most impactful thing was that article, and it and it was just kind of like you know, it, it overviewed a day of a day in the life like of Bud's life. training, yeah. um, and then and then kind of continued on. Then this is what the seal, you know, and, and at that time, you know, each team had its own uh, specialty and, and whatever before yeah. everybody reorged and kind of became the jack of all trades. But um, you know, it was like here's the weapon systems, here's the missions that they do, here's you know, just kind of gave you a, a snapshot of, of what they were about. But the way that it was written, there was a lot of reverence. And, uh, yeah. you know, it, it's like us is the, the toughest U.S. military yeah. training that, that the United States has to offer. And I was like, well, fucking that's what I want to do. Then, you know? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I mean, kind of similarly, like I was yeah. a total fucking run. I was like five, four hundred pounds. Yeah. You know, at, at 14 and got the fuck beat out of me a bunch. And, and uh, yeah, just like it, it was all kind of just all kind of lined up that way. But did you tell people you wanted to do it or did you keep it to yourself? Uh, I mean, not certainly not everybody or not most people. I right. mean, the, the the circle of trust, yeah. uh, you know, I would say knew uh, my parents knew and uh, my best friend growing up. Uh, actually, we'd we had talked about being Rangers for a period, too, because that's, okay. what, that's what he yeah. wanted to do, but which he ended up doing that and then going to Delta uh, past that. But, oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was weird, you know, two, two best friends from a small yeah. rural town in Iowa. One, you know, one is a SEAL yeah. and the other one's a, yeah. a CAG guy. But um, anyway, uh, so, you know, largely focused on that in high school. And then did you uh, enlist right into high school? Uh, right no, in? I actually, uh, I, went, I went ROTC. Uh, my thing was I wanted, I, I wanted to be an officer in SF, you know, and it was one of the things that Mark – had said to me, he said, you know, um, if you want to be on a team longer and, and, and to be in the mix more, you're going to want to be an NCO one officer. If you want to really take care of the guys, um, be an, be a, an SF officer and stay in the group as long as you can. Yeah. And 
it resonated with me. I, at that point, I pretty much did anything he suggested, and yeah. and uh, he was a team leader at the time. I loved the idea of being a team leader. Um, so I went through ROTC, um, <laughs> was assessed a friggin' quartermaster, logistics really? officer coming out. Uh, was like that's when I started my heaviest drinking, you know, because I was so <laughs> disillusioned by that. Uh, went to ranger school as a quartermaster, second lieutenant. That was pretty sporty. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, basically went to went to Panama and, and rode it out for a couple of years there until I was eligible to try out. And yeah. then uh, tried out as a captain 1995 and uh, never looked back. So uh, in that early 90s period when you were in uh, Panama, were you a, a ranger officer or? I was ranger qualified you know, in a, in a, in a light infantry support unit. Okay. Um, but the, the cool thing that happened was, um, I, I came across a couple of mentors that knew I wanted to go SF and they hooked me up, got me out of that support unit and put me in a, in a job that was a special ops support unit. So my job was to basically go down to central and South America with a teams that were deploying and handle all of their like contract stuff. And they completely corrupted me, you know? And, and, and so, uh, I knew seventh group was where I was going to go central South America. I loved that area of responsibility. And, you know, in the nineties, that place was pretty hot Jam, with, with yeah. the Andean Ridge and the drug wars and all in the FARC. So, uh, yeah, I, I knew, and I had even got my language qualification and all that stuff done yeah. so that I could just go right into seventh group. Did you, uh, before you went to seventh group and did selection and all that, I mean, down, down in South America, were there any close calls when you were down there doing, uh, the logistics stuff? Not really. I mean, the, the, the team was that I, whenever I would deploy with the teams, they were always really good about, you know, force protection and, and, and being smart. Um, I mean, I had close calls as a, as a single Lieutenant in Panama <laughs> that were of my own making, uh, yeah, but enough said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but no, I mean, every, again, I had, it was the seventh group NCOs to me, were just the finest bunch of dudes I've ever known. Like they, they just consummate pros, um, and had such great relationships with the with the partner forces downrange, yeah. and just watching those guys and watching how they operate, how they carried themselves. Um, no, I, I didn't have any. No, I did have some close calls once I was in SF working in Colombia in particular. Yeah. Um, before we get into that, um, trying to kind of contrast. I know Ranger School and, and selection. Yeah. are very different yeah. uh, b by design and, and, mm -hmm. and what have you. But um, how do you compare the two? Yeah. Um, you know, Ranger School to me was, and then you, you would always hear it's a leadership school. And, I, and to some degree, I agree with that. I mean, learning how to, how to lead uh, peers when you don't have rank, you don't have any kind of authority, and, and you're all super hungry, and, you know, you've been out in the Tennessee Valley Divide for seven days. So in that sense, it was, I, to me, I, I learned more about myself in mm -hmm. ranger school. I learned when I'm truly hungry and when I'm not, yeah. when I'm truly cold and when I'm not. And I do think I learned a lot about how to, um, how to lead people. My, my ranger buddy was killed in, uh, on 9-11, but he was the best leader I ever met. And, and, and in ranger school, he, it didn't matter like what was going on, how bad conditions were, Everybody loved that guy, and they would follow him anywhere. And you know, was he killed in the Pentagon? He was. Oh shit! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but for me, that's what Ranger School was. It was, it was, um, you know, it was a nine-week gut check, but also um, a discovery of myself as a leader. Selection, to me, was much more about um, the entry gate into a profession that 
you know, it was a tryout is the way it felt to me. Yeah. It was a tryout. And, and uh, it felt radically different than Ranger School. Yeah. You know, whereas Ranger School, I'm going to gut through this thing. I'm going to get a black and gold tab and, you know, be able to say I'm Ranger qualified. And that's cool. But for SFAS, man, it was like I've been salivating for this since I was 14. Yeah. And it's three weeks between me and that dream. Yeah. Well, um, I, one thing I wanted to ask about Ranger School, do you remember how much weight you lost? Oh, my God. I was looking at pictures with my mom the other day and, um, I, I lost, I lost a, and I didn't have a lot of weight to lose, yeah. you know, but I think I got down, I want to say I got down to like 125 or some oh. stupid, I mean, I lost a lot of weight and then it got to where you're, you know, um, uh, you're burning muscle, yeah. you know, and it's that, that, that stink that you have that, that muscle burning. And, yeah. but I, I did, I lost a lot of weight, particularly in the, in the, um, in Florida phase. Yeah. I can only imagine that growing up, uh, dad working where he did and, and traipsing around the fucking mountains that that had to have helped prepare you for it. It did. My, in, in fact, we grew up part of our, my childhood in, in North Georgia, you know, where the, where the mountain camp is. Um, and I'd been on the Tacoa river, you know, so, so I've always loved the woods. I feel very, very comfortable in the woods. Fieldcraft has never been fieldcraft patrolling, navigating that kind of thing has never been, uh, it's always felt like a second home to me. Um, and it definitely, definitely helped having a dad that was a forest ranger. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. Uh, once you get through selection, the th that three week process from there, what was it like, uh, going from then until like, at what point did you feel like, yeah, I've made it and I'm a, a green beret. The, the moment I made it through selection and I, um, uh, I got my orders to go to the, to the infantry advanced course and then the Q course, um, I had somewhere along there, I found out that I was going to be going to seventh group because of, I already had the language. Mm -hmm. And, um, I drove over to seventh group headquarters and, um, I just remember sitting on the hood of my truck, looking across that compound and thinking, this is going to be my home for as long as I can make it my home. Yeah. You know, it just felt, and I didn't, I knew some of the guys already from Panama, but it literally, it just felt like home. And, yeah. and, um, and, even today, when I go there, it feels that way. But but I knew. I mean, I, the second that I got pinpoint orders to seventh group, um, I knew right then and there that that was my family. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. How how, uh, how would you describe going through the Q course by comparison? You know, the Q course to me was, and I. By the way, I, I think uh, I recycled every school in the army that I went to <laughs> like twice, including Ranger School. I did Ranger School basically three times. Um, <laughs> And the Q course, I got recycled a couple of times as well. Um, but going through the Q course to me, once you were in it, it, it was uh, it was much more technical. You know, there were some hard things like the long distance navigation and, and sear and things like that. But for the most part, it, it was a it was a technical it was a technical application yeah. um, and learning about unconventional warfare, which I absolutely loved. Um, learning learning the the aspect the science. Mm -hmm. of building rapport, of working by, with, and through indigenous populations and, and case study after case study of how that's been done. For me, it was heaven. Like yeah. it was exactly what I knew I was supposed to be doing. Um, but it was not the level of like intensity that you would see in ranger school or anything like that. Yeah. Um, so once you make it through, you go to seventh group. Uh, did those guys welcome you from having known them? Were they like, oh, they sure did. you made it through. They sure did. Yeah. They sure did. I mean, they gave me a lot of shit for getting recycled a couple of times. Um <laughs> But I, I got to a, a really senior team 
I, I don't know uh, how it went with you and the teams, but you know, when I first got in, the teams were really senior. Like the NCOs yeah. were, man, they'd been around a long time. Yeah. And, I, and it looked to me like that changed as the war on terror went on. The yeah. guys got younger and, and they were yeah. not on teams as long. Same. Uh, but, but at that time when I arrived, I was the youngest guy on the team and I was the detachment commander, you wow. know, and, and, uh, and my team sergeant, my team sergeant had been in the same battalion as an SF baby for 18 years. Jesus. <laughs> you know, and, and the, my warrant officer, something like 17 years. These were really, really senior guys. And um, they were a, were a fantastic team. They were really good at foreign internal defense, you know, wor working with partner forces down south. And, and they took a lot of pride in it, in the relationships and how they did it. And so I just fell right in on that. And probably my first year, honestly, was OJT. Yeah. Was just was just trying not to screw it up, and and to just be as relevant as I could and learn the tra learn the craft. Yeah, I would say largely similar. I mean, I, I was super young. I, I was the youngest kid in my uh, buds class and and in the platoon. I mean, I, I showed up at nineteen. Wow. Uh, you know, so there were a few really young guys like that. Most guys were in their mid to late twenties, and then you had the senior guys that were in their thirties. Yeah, uh, and same with the platoons at that point. It was it was a good mix of like the sled dogs were you know twenty five to twenty eight. Uh, senior leadership was you know maybe early thirties. Uh, all you know had fucking years of experience. They yeah. had a couple of spanker new guys that they got to slap around and <laughs> take under their wing or whatever. And and it worked really really well that way. But but similarly, you know five years post nine eleven, you know the average age of any platoon is like fucking twenty three years Crazy. old. You know yeah so. Um, so if you could, was the first place that you went Columbia as a, as an actual Green Beret? The first place I went um, before I was assigned to a team, um, because I already, I thought I was going to language school, but because I already had uh, a tested out in Spanish, um, they decided uh, Peru and Ecuador had got into another little skirmish on the border. And um, my first SF deployment was actually down to that, that border skirmish, uh, an operation called Safe Border. And that's original, right? <laughs> uh, but what made it really cool, Mike, was that, and this is what I came to love about SF. Uh, so when that happened, Peru and Ecuador, they get into it. This guy named uh, uh, Higgins, he was Major Higgins at the time, I think. No, he was a, he was a colonel. Uh, but he was working in the mill group, I believe, in Peru. And he was a lifelong, iconic 7th Group officer, had, you know, knew every host nation guy in the inventory. So when this shooting war happens in the in the Sanapa Valley, I mean, it has the potential to go high order pretty quick. So he jumps in there and does a bottom-up, con-up kind of, to nominate to put whatever A-team was on the ground at the time doing a J-set. And he throws half of them on one side of the border of Peru and Ecuador, half of them on the other. And then he talked, because he had relationships with those tactical commanders on both sides, he talked them into putting 50 guys uh, on each side. So like there was a like there was a mix, and then you had an SF dude in each one of the outposts, yeah. right? And then you had if you had fifty Peruvians in a little outpost on the Peruvian side, then you had an Ecuadorian officer in there as well. So there was this this blend yeah. of of those two countries plus an SF dude, and it worked. And not only did it work, it became the formation for this mission that went on for like another eight months until the policymakers got it sorted out and put it to bed. Yeah. But I got deployed down on that mission as one of those observers and I didn't know 
shit. I didn't, I didn't have a team. <laughs> and they threw me out in this outpost, you know, yeah. with this Peruvian and Ecuadorian officer who hated each other, had yeah. fought each other. And I'm trying to keep them out of fist fights and everything else. But it, for me, it was like, damn, this 05 just literally stopped a shooting war from the bottom up yeah. and nominated this mission. And, and, he, and he solved the problem. But, but it was a local application with a strategic outcome. And so that was actually my first deployment. And um, I didn't do a lot on it other than just try to keep these dudes apart. But, man, did I learn a lot yeah. about how things really work down there. Yeah. Was it uh, – did it ever simmer up to the point where shit was getting kind of hairy? Yeah, it did. Yeah. There, was one, there was one point where I was in one of the outposts. And uh, because it, the Sinapa Valley is like Jurassic Park. I mean, it's not mapped well. None of these guys can read a map anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and these, this Ecuadorian patrol – walked right into the PV to the to the per, to Peruvian outpost oh, wow. and they like bumped into each other and everybody had guns drawn and you know I'm out there in between them with my little nine mil and my holster trying to like you know yeah. my white hat yeah. trying to separate them with a one one Spanish rating standoff. Uh, it was crazy but um again you know that's how it started in the first place yeah was actually something like that and and so being able to de-escalate that having a good enough relationship at that point with the senior officers and the NCOs to kind of pull them aside, talk to them. Uh, I had never realized how many times I would do some version of that over the next two decades in yeah, my life. Yeah, you know, no shit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a, yeah, that's a big part of it. Uh, where did, so after that you came back and then, uh, yeah, Columbia uh, what was you, my next, was okay. my team deployment. And this is late nineties. It was uh, late nineties, you know, so you had the, it was a weird time in Columbia because you know, you had Escobar had been killed. But you still had the, you know, the remnants of, of, of his cartel, the Medellin cartel. You had the Cali cartel. And then you had the FARC and the ELN, which were the, nar the, 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 uh, the insurgent groups. They were starting to get into the narco business that had been left as a void. So it was a really bizarre time of, of bad actors. Yeah. And, you know, we were kind of just right in the middle of it working out of the embassy. Yeah. Was it uh, tumultuous for you guys? Like, were you getting into gunfights and shit or... No, I mean, what was more, what was more probably um, accurate was we, you know, you were, there were bombings all the time, you know, a lot of terror activity in the city. Yeah. You had to, a lot of kidnappings. You had to be really careful about that. Um, we would go out some as advisors with the Colombian police and the commandos and that kind of thing. Um, but typically, I mean, it was, it was fairly, it was pretty benign at that time it wasn't benign to them sure but like the operations that we went on as advisors and stuff like that yeah. there was a pretty good standoff i mean there were a few times that it got it got hairy um but you know what, what was really what i what strikes me mike is i look back on that time and the colombian military was really reticent to get into it with the farc i mean mm -hmm. they they would not mix it up with them we would go out to these outposts like san jose de guaviati and, and go out there and and they wouldn't leave the wire at all like no way would they go outside the wire. Um, and the FARC really had the run of the country. I mean, they had a demilitarized zone called the Despeje that was the size of Switzerland. Jeez. And, and so they had the run of the country. And that was my first look at an insurgency gone wild, you know, mm -hmm. that was just unchecked. Yeah. Um, and a military that wasn't willing to, to get into it. And, 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 and so that's kind of where my baseline was going into it. And then, you know, I kept going back to Columbia over you know, over a decade yeah. and to watch the improvement of uh, the technical and tactical efficiency of those units based on great SF and SEALs advising them over time Marines. 
It was profound, man. Yeah. But 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 in the '90s, it was not good. Yeah. So I'm curious, uh, you know, having been there, um, especially now, 20 years later, you see a lot of like you know narco's yeah shows and and these depictions of that time, and and it's fairly pop culture to see simulations of of that time period. Do you find those to be accurate, or are they? Misguided. I think contextually, like the the uh, the, the narco shows that had pa- Pablo and kind of his rise to power, I think there were some you know obviously some historical inaccuracies in it, but the feel of it, accurate. like was pretty accurate. The way yeah. it felt yeah. back then, yeah. I feel like they conveyed that pretty well, yeah. you know. And I told my wife that I was, I was watching, it's like, damn, it, yeah. it literally feels like back in the nineties. I guess I shouldn't assume that you don't have uh, intimate knowledge of Mexican cartels and the status of narco-terrorism as it relates to today, but I'm curious, having spent a lot of formative years and time um, you know, in that environment, uh, what is your take on what's going now with Mexico uh, and, and their cartels and the infiltration of our border? And, and yeah. like if you were to kind of compare and contrast those two different environments uh, you know, with a 20-year span, what, what do you... What do you think about that? Well, look, being candid, you know, my, my knowledge of the Mexican cartels as opposed to my knowledge of, say, the Indian Ridge cartels is radically less. But I do stay in touch with a lot of folks in the intel community. A lot of I, I still train federal law enforcement who deal with them. And, and so I have some sense of it. And, and what I would say is, one, I, I don't think there is a comparison. I think where the Mexican cartels are today um, is radically more advanced and more violent than even what you saw in Colombia in the 90s. I, I think what they, the, their level of unmitigated violence and what and the levels of violence they're willing to visit on the United States if the situation required it, mm-hmm. they would not hesitate. Yeah. I mean, they would literally wage war uh, in a way that would make ISIS, you know, seem like a holiday morning, yeah. uh, an ISIS attack. Um, so I think they're su- they have a lot of will, they have a lot of capacity, they're well organized. This whole thing with fentanyl you know, um, to me is, is, uh, is an act of war. I mean, like what they're bringing across the borders, the, 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 the levels of casualties that are coming from it. But, but I think what we have to understand is this is not clear and present danger. You know, this isn't some Tom Clancy thing that you can go, you know, send the seventh ID or the Marine recon and like swack these dudes. And you're like, they will come at us with all four feet if we pull the tail on that tiger Yeah, and they can it's just we need to know that i think mm-hmm. that's what i would say different than you know the, the colombians the farc they didn't they didn't want to mess with us you know there were certain things that you just didn't do mm-hmm. otherwise you bring uncle sam into it in a way that's not not good for them right, right? I, I think the cartels honestly i don't think they care yeah you know honestly i don't think they care i think they would um um they don't do it right now because they're you know they're unprovoked but if provoked that would be to me the biggest difference is yeah. they could bring this gun in. I guess you know maybe it's dependent. I, you know I'm certainly no no authority on it. Uh, I mean I, I have an interest in it because it's uh, largely impactful to our society. But you know one thing that struck me is kind of counter to that, and and maybe it's because um, maybe it's a smaller cartel, or you know maybe it, it's cartel dependent. Obviously they're all independent of one another. And that autonomy, I'm sure, brings a completely different decorum or lack thereof as to how they conduct themselves in relation to the United States. But, you know, here recently, those four Americans that got caught in a yeah. crossfire, two of them killed. I mean, fuck that. I mean, 
for them to write an apology note and like hog tie the guys that were responsible just fr from my casual observer's perspective like that seems contrary to to your point but again that's a, a smaller cartel like that's not the big one of the big three or four that exists and i i, I don't know the names of them off the top of my head but yeah um yeah I'd like i like i was surprised to see that i guess i mean because i i, I agree largely with they seem to be a different animal uh, and, yeah. and they seem very isis like in in the way that they conduct themselves of just having absolutely zero fucking empathy towards anything other than what they're trying to accomplish. But yeah, so that, that one kind of threw me for a loop. No, I think that's fair. I think to be super clear, I believe if we pulled the tail on the tiger on them, like yeah. if, if we said, okay, cause there's been a lot of um, suggestions, loud suggestions that we, that we go after the cartels because of the fentanyl yeah. piece alone and the, and the threat that it represents the, you know, to, to the United States and the guys that I've talked to and just their, their assessment of it is if you did that, yeah. just know that what you're going to get back in terms of reciprocity, everything is, is everything they have. Yeah. You know, they're not going to, they're not going to, they're not going to pull back from that. Yeah. Do you think, uh, I mean, I, I am hearing the, the same, echoes of, of pretty strong suggestions do you agree with those i guess for example the push to designate them as terrorist organizations and go after them the same way we would any any other terrorist organization do you think that that's what we should do i i, I do i do i think that they they definitely should be designated as a terror group the, the degree to which we go after them and, and how we do it um you know i'm still kind of still kind of formulating that in my mind um but but yeah, I, I think that it's 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 we're gonna have to do something. Yeah, to me, to me, I you know it, it's a tough, tough thing to decide. I, I think for me, it, it's a little bit of the cart in front of the horse. Uh, frankly, I, I think it's kind of like trying to decide what to do with a, you know, what what flooring to replace your bathroom with because it's flooded while the toilet's still overflowing. Mm -hmm. You know, to me, it's like in, until you shut the fucking border down, and I mean yeah. legitimately shut it down. Yeah it would be foolish to do that, you know, yeah. Be, because yeah, fair. To, to your point, like it, it, that, that's a very real possibility. And, and I would say it's a probability that, that what you're talking about is, is what would happen. So why would you not want like the yeah. entire national guard on the fucking border before you pull that tail? Yeah. Like make sure that everything's locked the fuck down before you do that. Cause if you do that now, like it's, it's wide open. Like yeah. there's going to be Sicarios and, and fucking terrible dudes flooding across the border to do nasty gnarly shit to people you yeah. know um, yeah not to mention that you know those guys are you know they have their own version of unconventional warfare too i mean like yeah. their you know their international gang presence is connected deeply to local street gangs yeah and you know that's another major major problem is yeah. is that their access and placement at a localized level by with and through street gangs yeah and, and that's probably hundreds of thousands oh, of it in it anywhere they want to reach yeah yeah crazy it, yeah i mean it's a that's a fucking mess there's no no two ways about it um throughout your entire time uh combating narcotics uh, or i guess combating the uh, in, in those regions combating yeah. the car. Uh, did you ever get into any like legit rock 'em sock 'em fucking gunfights with uh, with any groups down there or was it all advisory type stuff? The the biggest 
conflict we had, the biggest, the biggest, uh, the night that I almost bought it was uh, was actually we had come out of the southern, come out of the southern part of Afghanistan, and uh, we were we were actually going into Bogota for like a night just to um, our sergeant major I think was leaving, and and so we went up there and he was working out of the embassy, so we drove up there and it was you know through some pretty sporty territory and we get up there and we were gonna we went to this event for his farewell, and um, it was at an off. Uh, kind of a, a restaurant out in the in the heights there, and and uh, it was everybody was acting the gringo fool, and we we just felt really weird. My sergeant major and I and two other NCOs, and we're like, let's just get out of here. Let's head back. So we were going to leave first thing in the morning, and and the guys wanted to grab a beer at the Bogota Beer Company in the northern part of of Colombia, and so we I was like, all right, cool, and um, I stopped on the side of the road. I had just quit dipping. And I grab a chupa pop like a sucker. My guys are giving me shit about it. <laughs> Buying it from this little old lady. And we turn to walk in the Bogota Beer Company, and the whole front of it just blows out. Holy fuck. Yeah, man. I mean, and I remember, like, my ears were ringing. I sit up and, um, you know, high-pitched noise. And everybody in the restaurant is still just sitting there on fire. God damn. Yeah. And um, so I look over at my sergeant major. My ears are completely blown out. And, and, and he's yelling, but I can't hear what he's saying. And, um, and it, I mean, it was just like feet away where this happened. And he, and then I realized what he was saying was he was pointing the way to go. And it was opposite of where everybody else was running. And, and, you know, he had worked in Columbia a long time and he knew there was a secondary, you know? And so, uh, we picked up and we, we just were pushing through the crowd and sure shit, another explosion right into where everybody was running. Um, and then followed by AK-47 fire, and we just kept moving until we, we cleared out of there and got up to a piece of high ground where we could observe and report and call the embassy. And, and you know, but it just came out of nowhere, man. You know, like it, it, it was to this day. And uh, for the longest time, like he, and the, he would send me a, a pack of suckers on that day every, yeah. <laughs> every day. So quit, quitting dipping saved your life it's, twice. That's then. right, man. Yeah. Were you guys the target? I don't think we were. I think, I think. I think Americans were the target, you yeah. know, and, and, um, and it was definitely an arm of the FARC that did it. Um, was it Americans that were killed that were sitting on fire? When no, you- no, they were further back in the bar. It was, uh, unfortunately it was Colombian nationals. And, uh, wow. you know, one of the, one of the ladies that was just brutally burned was a young Colombian girl working her way through college. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just, uh, yeah. um, but that was, that was probably the most extreme, uh, engagement that, that, that I encountered in, in all my time down there. Wow. Has that impacted you to like, is that something that, that rattled you to the point where you thought about it for I a think, while? I think it rattled me one because I was young, you yeah. know, and I was, you know, I was at the time I was a, I was a young major. Um, and it, it rattled me because that could have been my guys and me and, and we just walked right into it, you know, so I was kind of beating myself up over that. But, but also what got me was just the complete randomness of it, you know, and you, you like to think that you're, you're well-trained. You like to think that you do the force protection stuff, that you do everything right. And we did like we, everything that we had, you know, we had really taken very careful countermeasures, but it was wrong place, wrong time, man. Or in this case, maybe right place, right time, because we, it didn't kill us. But, um, it really, it, it rattled me in the sense that it's like, damn, you could do all this stuff and somebody can still reach out and touch you, Yeah, you know? And, and it's usually when you least think, cause I remember thinking what a nice night it was, I was already kind of thinking about uh, it was getting uh, close to the holidays. I was thinking about my family. Like I was not thinking about that. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you are. And yeah. and that for me 
was was a real wake up call, and it was before my first deployment to Afghanistan. And um, you know, I'm actually glad that I experienced it because I think it, it taught me some lessons. Yeah. Do you feel like you guys were complacent, or you, you'd done everything and it just? I think we'd done everything, but I mean, in the sense that I look back on it now, you know, um, the zona rosa or the red zone of you know of it, it is a it is a favored target area of the FARC. Yeah. You know, if I'm being honest with myself, we should have got our ass in the car and drove back. We should yeah. have left. We should not have gone there. Yeah. You know, um, but uh, we did. And, you know, it wasn't like an off-limits area or anything. But when you do that, when you take that kind of risk and you put yourself into that kind of public arena. It can happen. It can happen. Yeah. Yeah, that's wild. Um, so you come back. Um, what what transpired between coming back from that and going to Afghanistan? Um, well, you know... <sighs> We were, the 7th group was so eager to get into the fight at that point. You know, after 9-11, particularly after like after my ranger buddy had been killed, I was salivating to get into the fight and be part of the global war on terror. And 7th group was, we, got, we had one battalion go in in like 02, but for the most part, we had kind of been held back and was focused as a strategic reserve. 3rd group was getting into the action. 5th group was already in it. Um, you know, 10th was getting into Iraq. So, uh for me, it was just, and for all of our guys, it, it was we were just really, really anxious to get into the into the fray, and it wasn't until '04 that we finally got the nod to to deploy into southern Afghanistan. Um, so up until that point, it was it was continuing to go to Colombia, continuing to do missions downrange, and yeah. and 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 trying to hold morale together. Yeah, with the guys who were so pissed off. Yeah, that they were going to Peru or Paraguay instead of. Kandahar. Yeah. What was the first deployment to uh, Afghanistan like? It was it was a major, major shift for me because I had spent my entire life, my entire adult life in Central and South America working with, you know, I mean, nations that were more, um, not primitive, but but lesser developed than, mm -hmm. than, than ours, certainly their militaries. But they were far more developed than what we saw in Afghanistan, both at a civil society level. And, um, you know, to me, when, when I stepped foot in Afghanistan for the first time, it was like stepping back into the seventh century. You know, it really was, it was looking at the, the, the culture, the, the military had not even existed, um, until we stood it up in Oh two, like yeah. they hadn't had a military for decades. Um, and, and so everything was, was so behind and, and, and just ancient. Yeah. It seemed like, and 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 so we found ourselves um, rolling in as a seventh group guys. We thought, all right, you know, the 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 coalition at the time was kind of moving the militia off to the side, and they were bringing the Afghan National Army to the forefront. Yeah. Um, so for me, it was okay. Well, this is our opportunity. We know how to do that. We're pretty good at that. Um, we're gonna we're gonna build. We're gonna start building the capacity of the Afghan National Army. And taking them into fights, yeah. you know, and taking them with us, mm -hmm. um, and that's that's what most of that first deployment was. It yeah. was it was partnering with Afghan, and most of those guys had never heard the crack of a round. They had never been engaged in combat. They were super young. Um, you know, a lot of the thing about the Afghan National Army that people don't know is that in typically in third world countries, particularly that are tribal or status society, joining the army is not a badge of honor. Yeah. It's usually a last resort. Yeah. It's, it's usually because it's, it's it, well, even worse. It's like your family, for whatever reason, has disowned you or pushed you out of the clan. Yeah. And so you're living in the city, yeah. you know, and the, and, 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 and so the only way to, um, 
survive in some cases is like to join the army and the Afghan National Army in that case. And, and that's really, I think, a reason we had so many insider attacks from the ANA yeah. was because it was a chance for them to reclaim their honor. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a strange uh, ideology for as a society to regard their war fighters and, and overall their countries and societies protectors with such a low regard. It's weird. It is weird. The, the way that I had it explained to me as I was learning tribal dynamics in Afghanistan from an old fifth group uh, tribal guy who really worked with the Montagnards a lot. The way he explained it to me was, so the societies that we come from are typically regarded as contract societies. It's where you put the individual above the group, right? And the Constitution declares that. And so your war fighters, your, your first responders, those are the protectors of the broader body of the people. A place like Afghanistan is not like that. It's a status society. It's a tribal society. It's the rule of the clan, not the rule of law, right? So all of your obligations are to your in-group, to your, to your tribe. And so the warriors are highly regarded, but it's not, it's not the Afghan soldier. It's the son of the tribal elder, yeah. right, who leads the Arbakai defense force. I got you. You know what I mean? And, and so they have a very high regard for their warriors. They just don't see them as the centralized state warrior as the, the, as the defender of freedom. Yeah. Do you see a similar shift in our society uh, politically almost? Well, I mean, look at recruiting and retention right now. I mean, I something's mean, going on. Yeah. I mean, I guess I mean where there, there's a shift to where it's like party above individual in, in, for a lot of people, not for everybody. Yeah, I agree. I, 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 the, it's, um, I, I call it divisionism. You know, it's, it's these leaders, institutional leaders who we have traditionally looked to to hold the line and be stewards of democracy, stewards of freedom, stewards of the free market. Now what they're doing is they're, they're playing to these in-groups, you know, uh, for short-term agenda and short-term outcomes and, and like dividing us intentionally. And, and, and that's in politics. It's in news. You see it in a lot of places. It's intentional division. Um, and it's, it's fomenting instability across the broader populations to advance one group over another. Yeah. Uh, and that in its purest form is tribal dynamics. That's yeah. what tribes do. Yeah. I mean, I, I see as things start to shift, uh, you know, that being more and more prominent where it's kind of a, a mix of that and like a, a gangbanger Crips versus blood mentality of, um, you know, there, there's like a, I'd rather see everything go down the shitter but us get the w and take credit for it you know rather than stick my ego in my back pocket and and just make sure that the country wins it's like i agree man that, i think it's well said that and there's there's this strange um like head in the sand when it comes to not holding our own side i say own like i'm not on a side for for a lot of uh for most i think people who are hardline politically associated or affiliated with either party they're not willing to hold their own guy or side to the same level of accountability that they will the other side it's such intellectual dishonesty you know yeah. like I, a lot of what i talk about in my leadership stuff is around human connection and it's 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 about the erosion of trust um at a high level and how we're basically reverting back to like shadow tribalism yeah um, because of fear-based behavior, perceived resource scarcity, a range of other factors. But when that, when that happens, what we do is we slide back into kind of a primal state. 
And, you know, you talk to leaders about that and they'll say something like, yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. Especially those fucking Democrats or those fucking Republicans. And you're like, dude, you're doing it right now. You're doing it. You're demonstrating what I'm talking. You are the example. And, and it is, it's one, it's intellectually dishonest, but uh, Sebastian Younger actually characterizes this very well in his book tribe. And he says, you know, most, he goes, uh, for veterans coming home from war, um, it's they, they, every single one of them almost knows how are willing to die for their country, but very few of them know how to live for it. And it's hard to live for a country that is tearing itself apart along every imaginable line, you know, and in so many ways, the stuff that we fought for over there to keep over there is actually manifesting right here at home. And, and our leaders in many cases, institutionally are fomenting it and we're giving them a pass because it's my guy. Right. Well, and I think uh, it's not just on the politics side either. I, I see that, uh, you know, pretty heavily in, in, involved with our own military, yep. I'll use air quotes, leaders, because uh, they're, they're really not. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm curious to get your take. I've talked with a number of guests on General Milley and, and Lloyd Austin. Like, I think both of them are fucking terrible. Um, and, and I see guys like that doing the things that they're doing adhering to policies that they're adhering to coming up with things, uh, you know, and, and, you know, castrating so many fucking good mid-level leaders in, in our military for the dumbest shit. And I just think like this, this is in unfolding in front of our eyes, the, the, the Greek empire or the Roman empire fucking just collapsing, you know, because of the dumb shit that our, our own, political and military leaders are doing to, to ourselves. Yeah. You know, when Afghanistan collapsed for me, it was the culmination of, uh, a careerist bureaucratic, um, political and military leadership structure that had just crossed the final line for me, you know, and for a lot of us, a lot of, a lot of the NCOs and officers that I, that I stay in touch with. But you know, when, when that happened, you know, there were a lot of veterans who saw the abandonment of our allies, the commandos, the special forces, the Casca Tejas, as, you know, unacceptable. Yeah. We're just not going to leave a partner on the field like that. And, and and these different groups stepped forward to try to help them. But what was so disgusting to me, and still is, and I when I testified to Congress to the House Foreign Affairs Committee a couple of weeks ago, I, I said this in my remarks and my Christmas card reception list from Fort Bragg has gone way down <laughs> since then. But I, I said, it was a positive. Yeah, I'll take it. Um, that it, not one single senior officer or senior enlisted advisor threw their rank on the table when that happened. Yeah. I not said, one. Yeah. I said the same thing. I, I've had guests on that, uh, you know, have kind of defended those, those guys, specifically Millie, like he's a joint chiefs, right? He's the, he's the guy, he's the go between. And to me, it's like, wow, no, you know, his, his, advice and his counsel was all to do this this and this and, and it just wasn't followed it's like he still works for that fucking douchebag yeah you know so to me like i don't give a fuck like there, there has to come a point and and he's way the fuck past that yeah of, of taking his shit off and setting it on the ground and say if you're not going to fucking listen to me i'm not going to be part of this fucking abortion right and he didn't do that no you and, know and, and and i and again uh <clears throat> you know look it, there's a lot of folks who have said similar things to me. You know, folks close to General Milley said, well, do you want 
general officers to, you know, resign or throw their stars down every time they disagree with a political decision. And and my response was, if it is, if it is morally wrong, yes. Yeah. Because that's what we were trained to do. Yeah. That's what we were trained to stand up against. And we were held to account for that yeah. for years, you know, you, and, and, and yet when, when the time came, the, the, the largest systemic abandonment of our allies in history and not one special ops leader or senior military leader publicly took a stand on that. Yeah. And, and then to make it worse, many of them were placing phone calls under the table on their cell phones to groups like ours asking us to get their guy out. Yeah. And, and that just, to me, adds fuel to the flame of a moral injury that is already pretty prolific. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I mean, to me, like, I, I would rebut that, that comment, you know, on top of what you already said of say, well, is there a fucking scenario where you would? Right. Like, at, at what point? Yeah, when w- would you? Yeah, like, there has to be a line somewhere. Yeah. You know, so where yeah. is that fucking line? Do yeah. you even know? Yeah. And, you know, for me, I, I look at, at my journey personally on it. I, I retired from the Army in 2013. And at the time, I had been selected for battalion command. In fact, I'd been selected for three battalion commands, and I turned them all down. And the last one I turned down were prejudiced because of how we left Afghanistan villagers in a lurch in 2012 to be uh, hunted down, similar to what happened in 2021. And because of the very careerism that you had described, like I just couldn't do it anymore, yeah. you know? And, and so I made a decision, not in a spectacular public way, but I hung it up, turned down command. And, and you know what? I, I, I'm fine with that to this day. I'm glad I did. Yeah. Um, but when I look at the, the level of abandonment and moral injury that it came from, I mean, there's a poll out right now that says that uh, something like 73% of Afghan war veterans feel betrayed by the way we left that country. Yeah, no, you know? absolutely. I mean, and that's astounding. Yeah, I mean, to me, Iraq was the same thing, just it, on it a was. smaller scale, yep. you know. Yep. Uh, but the, the travesty was the exact same. The Kurds? Know? Yeah, I mean, just... And, and the people in general, it's like, you know, for 15 years, thir- you know, 13, 14 years, you've got, you know, a, a society that, that has largely supported and enabled us to do what we need to do there. And then you just fucking leave and, yeah. and, and let this group of just fucking savages come in and, and just do whatever the fuck they want and take, yeah. and take everything. I mean, same thing with all the gear. I mean, them rolling around in Oakley fucking tan boots and, and driving fucking Humvees. And I mean, it's just like, and then act like it never happened. Yeah. Like, like that's the thing is like, fuck were we there for just then act like it never happened. And you know, it, we gave our whole youth to this war, man. And, yeah. and, and I, I actually had a general officer, say to a room of, of soft veterans at a banquet, you know, you guys are keep talking about betrayal. Stop doing that. You, it makes you look like victims. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, with it, these are the very people who are actively trying to help these guys get safe passage, paying for safe houses, paying for babies to be born, using their kids' college fund to pay for medical supplies, for humanitarian relief yeah. to guys that were alive because of them, yeah. you know? And, and, to, to, to even insinuate that our generation of guys who stepped into the breach and were not good with the way this went down and tried to do something on their own, um, it, it's, it's, it's astounding to me. The, the, it's so tone deaf. Yeah. And there's such a, 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 just a chasm between the leaders and the lead from this 20-year war. And I honestly think that that is going to have to, going back to your original question of, you know, is there, you know, is there a, 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 an aspect of this in our own civil society? I think there is. 
And the, the military leadership needs to figure this shit out um, or they're going to see a widening problem with recruiting and retention yeah. and national security that's not going to, and, and force readiness, that's not going to get any better. Yeah. I mean, it's been my experience, and I'm curious if, if you see the same thing, especially coming from the officer side. I mean, I was always enlisted. Uh, but one of the things that, that myself and, and I would say largely all of the guys that, um, you know, that I worked with, operated with, et cetera, all had a pretty similar perspective, which was from the leadership side is that the, the guys that you would want progressing in rank were always guys that didn't care about it. Yeah. You know, like they, they were care, they cared about the boys, they cared about the job, the mission and, and making sure that all of that was a cohesive thing getting done, that the guys were taken care of, the job was getting taken care of, the mission was being accomplished. You know, if they checked this fucking hazmat driver box and this fucking leadership course box, what, they didn't give a fuck. And the problem is, is that so those guys that, that were actually the best guys to lead on paper were being outshined by these yep. spineless fucking dorks that made sure that, okay, I've got this box checked and I've done this and I've done that. And, and they're fucking horrible leaders. The guys have no goddamn respect for them, but they're just flying up the fucking chain yep. because they, they have all of the administrative bullshit handled. And so you get to this weird like, you know, middle of the road from a rank structure standpoint in the officers. Again, this is in the enlisted yeah. guys looking, looking outside in, but is that that's what it seemed like is that, you know, guys would get to 04, 05 and would get railroaded the fuck out yep. uh, by these spineless fucking jellyfish that, that had, you know, one rank above them, but were fucking losers that nobody liked that couldn't lead their own fucking dick out of a wet paper bag. And, and so now, 20 years later, you've got this super retarded fucking top-heavy pyramid of asshole leaders that don't have a fucking clue what they're doing and are totally disconnected from everybody else. Yeah, I think it's manifested, and, and you're seeing it. You're seeing 20 years plus of that shit. And, you know, one of the things that has been good coming out of the Afghanistan abandonment is I've reconnected in so many ways with guys that are still in, right, junior officers and NCOs who were devastated by the way we left there and, and were and still are involved in helping their allies. And so you talk to these guys and the atmospherics that I'm getting from them, Mike, on the leadership climate and their view. I mean, they're, uh, for example, captains in SF are leaving in droves. Yeah. They, they don't want to stick around. They don't want to be part of it. Yeah. And, and then you got senior officers scratching their head going, I don't understand what's going on. It's like, are you kidding me? Yeah, I mean, that, that's it's, why it's, it's, you know, it's right in front of you. Yeah. Um, and again, if there's not some kind of acknowledgement at the senior leader levels about what happened in Afghanistan, about the way it went down, some kind of accountability and personal responsibility around this thing um, to the veteran community, the guys that carried the, the rucksacks through this war, um, I, I don't think they're going to be able to pull this back. I think it's going to continue to degrade. It, it, there's just not a, you don't get a mulligan over shit like this. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't couldn't agree more. And I, but I don't, I mean, I don't I don't mean to be a pessimist, but I don't I don't have a lot of hope for for them doing that because to me it's kind of like asking the House of Representatives to do the same thing. Yeah. It's like, hey, stop with all the good deal bullshit. You know, hey, term limits and you know, no insider fucking secrets and what you know. It's like asking the fox to audit himself in the hen house. Like yeah. they're not going to do it because that then then they're getting rid of their good deal. And every one of those dickbags have spent, you know, 25, 30 years building one fucking, you know, Jenga block at a time 
to get to where they're at and and they'd have to fucking knock it all down basically by saying yeah we were fucking wrong and i just like none of them are men that way yeah and you know asking any organization in dc to police itself yeah it's uh (laughs) lost fucking cause i mean these people are your friends too like you grew up with them you know and and there's a deep deep bond and so keeping them alive you know, first and foremost, um, and and if there is going to be loss, you needs know, to be it, it needs to fucking matter. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. Hey guys, welcome to the Candy Valentino Show. I'm Candy Valentino. I was a founder before I could legally order a drink. And for more than two and a half decades, I've built, scaled, acquired, and exited multiple businesses in diverse industries. Now my goal is to help you by sharing the knowledge that I've learned, the mistakes that I've made, and the wisdom that I've developed over my journey. Bi-weekly episodes every Monday and Thursday. The Candy Valentino Show, wherever you listen.